Shalom, everybody. It's good to see you all here tonight. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. You guys know that. And I kind of feel like tonight may or may not turn out to be uh, kind of like a Diaspora of Yashorel special edition because, of course, this is not Sabbath. This is the fifth night of the week. But Rob and Michael are here with me. And they may be jumping into the conversation tonight. Who really knows what's going to be happening? However, we have a special guest speaker tonight. His name is Jason Beck. And Jason will be telling us all about himself. I'm going to hand it over to him really quickly and let him go through his presentation. He is, I'll, I'll give everybody a, um, a spoiler though. He is passionate about the feminine Ruach HaKadosh, or you might say the feminine Holy Spirit. And that's a topic that I have been passionate about recently as well, as well as Robin Michael. So with that, Jason, are you here? Yes, I am. Okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to hand it right over to you to open us in prayer and you can take it away. Sounds good. Well, Ruach, we just uh invite your presence uh over us today as we uh we look through the scriptures. Um we just ask that you would open our eyes to truth. Um that if I speak anything tonight that is against the truth that you would uh, show that to people, and also um, if I reveal anything that is true to you, that you would reveal that to people's hearts as well. We just ask for your uh, presence to be uh, upon us in an amazing way, that uh, that everyone listening, uh, either now or later, uh, would have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And we just thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. Um, I thought I'd open and just give a little, a brief background of who I am. Um, I'm, I'm pretty new to the group, so a lot of, a lot of you guys don't know me very well yet. Um, my name is Jason Beck and I grew up in a Mennonite church, um, since I was a little kid. Um, and I, I do enjoy my heritage, but I've definitely broken out of it and and kind of stretched beyond the boundaries, uh, so to speak. In 2007, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, and it changed my life in a very dramatic way. Uh, and it led me to uh, just a deep hunger for both for worship um, and also to study the Word. I, I just spent hours just uh, reading the Word uh, in the anointing. And um, I almost did an online seminary, and uh, the Lord told me not to specifically. So I I backed out of that. Um, in 2013, um, the Lord told me to write my first book, and I was extremely nervous about it. I, I did not uh, want to do it in any way, shape, or form. Um, basically, it was a, a book about the doctrines of the Bible, and a lot of the things went against um, what most of the people in my small town believe. I, I spoke against the Trinity. Um, spoke against the once saved, always saved. Um, there's 23 different topics that I, I hid in there. And, um, I was really nervous about it, and I I had prayed at the time if I could use a pen name, um, uh, basically to give me the freedom just to go for it, just to, to lay it all out there in, in 2013. And so I, I ended up using my middle name, Matthew, and then uh, H. Knopfsiger. Um, so Matthew H. Knopfsiger is my, my pen name. 
the H. Knopfsiger is, my grandfather was Harold Knopfsiger, and he never went to college, but he was a, an ardent study studier of the word. Um, always liked to quiz people on the Bible, um, taught Sunday school and those type of things. And I just always really admired him. And the Lord had told me numerous times through the years that I'm of the heritage of Harold. And that's just a word that always stuck with me. Um, and just so you guys kind of know what my passions are, because um, I think each one of us have uh, some specific things that the Lord has laid on our hearts to study. Um, for probably the last 10 years or so, uh, the main things that the Lord has had me study would be um, pre-Nicene church history, which would be uh, prior to the Council of Nicaea on 325. Um, I've gotten into a deep study of the oldest and most accurate Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Um, I've got into a deep study on the scriptures that have been modified in the Greek and Hebrew um, for the doctrine of the Trinity. In doing so, um, some of these men of history have tried to conceal uh, Yeshua's true identity along with Yahweh's. Um, and more recently, um, I've got into a study of um, the feminine Ruach HaKodesh, um, which is basically the last, uh, the last layer of what they tried to bury in history. Um, and then the last thing that I have studied quite a bit of is um, the Apocrypha. And I think I think I have a list that we'll look at. Um, there's 22 specific books of the Apocrypha that I've um, been studying. Not that I don't ever veer outside of that, but I I guess I have certain guidelines that I try to hold myself to. Um, and so basically everything that I've studied um, has led me to discover the family of God, um, but it happened in, in layers. There's, I feel like usually when I teach or talk to people, I like to take them through the first layer um, and improve that in a way, you know, and then go to the second layer. And, and I know you guys know a lot of these things already, so... Um, some of the layers I'll try to be brief on, but I, I like to give a little bit of groundwork or history. And then I'll probably go to the, uh, the first document if you guys want to, uh, to pull it up or if, or Josh, if you want to bring it up, it'd be the one that would be, uh, the two, uh, list of old Testament and new Testament manuscripts. Josh, you got it up? Just drop a thumbs up. I'm pretty sure he's probably got it up by now. Okay. You're good. All right. Thanks. All right. Um, see, I just put uh, at the very top of that document, I just put the main areas of my study, um, which I just talked about there in the 22 apocryphal books. Um, now, the, I guess when I wanted to discover the truth, 
um, about the Bible, I wanted to try to get the most, not just the most accurate translation, but also um, the most accurate, accurate base text. So the most accurate Hebrew or Greek text that would underlie it. You can see there in the beginning, um, for the Hebrew text, they have the, uh, the BHS um, or the Leningrad Codex, which basically almost every single Bible um, that we have today um, uses, these two texts are sort of one and the same. They, um, the BHS uses the Leningrad Codex. The thing that most amazed me though, is that it's not very old. It's from 1008, which to me, that's not good. There's been so many changes that have happened through Constantine and through church history that once you get that far down the line, there tends to be um, a lot of modifications to it. And if we scroll down to the, uh, the Greek New Testament, I'm sure you guys are familiar with like the Texas Receptus or the majority or received text. This is the Greek text that's behind the um, King James Bible. Uh, also the New King James um, and a couple spin-offs like your um, Amplified or and I think the ASB. It's not a very accurate text though. It's from 1100 AD and there was a lot of modifications made to it. Now the uh, the Nestle Allen 28th edition is basically basically the exact same thing as the UBS 5, the United Bible Societies. And what they've done is basically compile um, all of the oldest texts and make decisions. There's heavier weights on the, the oldest manuscripts. And so it basically has the entire Greek New Testament um, in what they believe is the most accurate form. And if we scroll down one section farther, these are the five um, oldest, most intact uh, Greek manuscripts, um, especially the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. That is what um, a huge chunk of our New Testaments are based on. But if you look there, I, I kind of have the years all listed of, um, and they're just rough, estimates they're not an exact year of course um the one thing that breaks the rule a little bit is the the codex uh Beze at the end that one does not have the old testament in there so just to make that disclaimer the rest of them have new and old testament and one thing i some people don't always realize when we talk about the uh, septuagint not only is it the greek old testament it's the Greek New Testament, and they were they were together. They were they weren't always together, but in these manuscripts, in in those years that they were found, they were all all one text. Now I want you to focus um, before we go on to the next part on the Codex Vaticanus um, manuscript B. It's called um, that was from 325, and Codex Sinaiticus, um, or called Aleph, written around 350 because um, I believe that I know possibly who wrote those. So I'll scroll down to the next page here. Now this is a quote from um, Eusebius wrote the life of Constantine, and this was written in 337 AD. 
says, be ready, therefore, to act urgently on this decision which we have reached. It appeared proper to indicate to your intelligence that we should order 50 volumes with ornamental leather bindings, easily legible and convenient for portable use, to be copied by skilled calligraphists, well-trained in the art, copies, that is, of the divine scriptures, the provision and use of which you well know to be necessary for reading in church. Written instructions have been sent by our clemency to the man who is in charge of the diocese, that he see to the supply of all the materials needed to produce them. The preparation of the written volumes with utmost speed shall be the task of your diligence. You are entitled by the authority uh, of this, our letter, to use to the use of two public vehicles for transportation. The fine copies may thus be readily transported to us for inspection. One of the deacons of your own congregation will presumably, presumably carry out this task, and when he reaches us, he will experience our generosity. God preserve you, dear brothers. These then were the emperor's instructions. Immediate action followed upon his word as we sent threes and fours in richly wrought bindings. And I want to focus on that threes and fours in richly wrought bindings. Um, so Eusebius was at the Council of Nicaea in 325. And following that council, um, Constantine did an order um, to print manuscripts. So going off that threes and fours, um, look first at the Codex Vaticanus that's in the picture. And there it's in three columns there. And I believe that that's what it's referring to. And if, if you scroll down uh, to the Codex Sinaiticus, that's in four columns there. Um, and there's no guarantee, but I believe it's easily possible that these Bibles um, were made by the Order of Constantine um, through Eusebius. And the craziest thing to me, every other complete manuscript prior to this date has been destroyed. There is papyrus uh, fragments, but all they are is fragments. There's no complete documents. So essentially, if Constantine uh, wanted to, and I believe he was a part of this, he sort of destroyed history and then had new Bibles written and he could make changes to it. Now, if you're going to change something, you're going to do it little by little. So even though um, there has been some changes made to these texts, um, which I can prove from reading early church history and how they would quote the Bible, they are far more accurate than the ones that are from the year 1000. And so that's, and I do base some of the things off of the age of the text as far as what reliability that I would give them. I'm going to skip this next quote here. Um, and, and some of this is for you guys just to have and, and to read. I want to go down to the Alan uh, Menzies Introduction to Origin. Now listen to what what he says about Origin. And Origin wrote in the 200s. It may be stated here that the translators of Origin in this volume have sought to represent their author's critical position with regard to Scripture by translating his Scripture quotations from his text. As he used the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, many of his quotations from that part of Scripture appear in a form unfamiliar to the English reader. In the New Testament also, his text is also very different from that which afterwards prevailed in the church. 
and that is to me a very frightening statement if we want to have if we want to access the absolute truth they're saying basically this this man origin that wrote in the 200s um that his text was much different not just in the old testament but also in the new testament and this last quote here is probably one of the most troublesome of all um, Origen wrote this in the year 246 in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, indeed, except for the fact that there are many disagreements in many other passages in the copies, such that the body of manuscripts for Matthew do not agree with one another, as is the case with the rest of the Gospels, one might seem to be impious in suspecting an addition in the present instance. The Savior, having not spoken the commandment to the rich man, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Now it is clear that many differences in the copies have come about either from the indifference of certain scribes or the misguided daring of some or from those neglectful of the correction of the things written or even those who in their correction either added or subtracted those things according to their own opinions. So in the year 246, he's talking about that some of these copies do not agree with each other. And he actually had the most extensive biblical library in the world at the time. Um, so it wasn't like he was just a, a recluse or didn't know what he was talking about. And he, had a, he did have a copy of the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew in his library that he talked about. Um, and Jerome went to his library to see it. And, and copied it as well. Um, that has been destroyed. Um, we don't have access to the full copy of that anymore, but there are a few a few quotes from it here and there. Um, I won't read through this next page completely, but um, we'll just briefly look at it with the apocryphal text. Basically, every text on here is in somebody's Bible. Um, so we have the Protestant Church, the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Ethiopic Church. Um, and as you look through, I kind of have highlighted which churches have each one of these books of the Apocrypha. Um, now, I'm not against reading other books of the Apocrypha, but I try not to base um, a lot of doctrine off of the other ones. Uh, this list here, um, at least being in some of these churches' Bibles, I give a little bit more credence to, just so you kind of have an idea of my background of, of how I process things. Um, some of you guys might agree and some, some might not. Does anybody have any comments on that, that first uh, section there? Yeah, I had a, a question. I don't know if you can answer, but uh, regarding the Hebrew text being uh, back as far as 1000 AD, what about the findings in like in the uh, uh, Dead Sea Scroll uh, caves where you have the full text uh, that are uncovered that match up with the Masoretic texts and so forth? What's your thoughts on that? Um, 
Well, and when you were saying the year, were you you're talking about the Hebrew text from 1008 AD, correct? The Masoretic. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls um, were definitely an amazing find. Um, and I have a copy of them translated in, into English. They There's a lot of uh, lacunas or gaps in there where it'll have three words and then a lot of dots and then go down a couple verses and then have a few words and then in a bunch of dots. Now they they can sort of piece together um, which text that it agreed with just by looking at the sequences of things, but they're broken up enough where people have to fill in the gaps quite a bit and it's it's hard to make um, it's hard to get exactly what was in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now I will I will preface this too though. Um, while I do heavily favor the Septuagint, the, the Greek Septuagint for the Old Testament, um, I don't think I put it in this study here, but I have I have a quote from Jerome and the Hebrew text that he had in his hands at the time he wrote in in the 400s and late 300s um, was a little bit different from the Septuagint that we have today. Um, so, I mean, obviously the Septuagint was copied off of the Hebrew, um, but unfortunately the 1,080 Hebrew uh, text we have today, in some cases, is not accurate. Um, one other thing I would say to that, and and I'll talk about it in the next section. Most of the changes made that that I'll show you were made with a very specific motive. So they wouldn't just go and change the entire book, the entire chapter. Um, they would specifically cut out any passages where it showed Yeshua to be a literal son of Yahweh um, or where it showed um, Ruach to be feminine. Um, and that seemed like, uh, by and large, their their greatest motive was to to, to delete the family of God. Um, and even even historians that are Trinitarians, they will tell you that um, a lot of these um, translators of old, uh, specifically uh, Rufinus, he translated Origins works from Greek into Latin, and he actually changed his writings to match with Trinitarian doctrines, and and even for Rufinus, they would say that he translated accurately, except for when it affected the doctrine of the Trinity. And then he would on purpose uh, modify Origen's writings to go along with the Trinity. All right. I, I wanted to ask for clarification. <clears throat> you, you stated the Masoretic not being uh, uh, exact. Uh, is is that being based upon the that versus the Septuagint, or what's your basis of control? What what's the control uh, text that you're basing it on? Um, yeah, I believe if you look at the uh, the quotes from Yeshua and the apostles in the New Testament, not all of them, but I believe the great majority of them lines up closer with the Septuagint. Um, but also a lot of my study has taken me to um, the pre-Nicene uh, church historians. And 
the quotes that they do from the Bible are much closer to the Septuagint than the Masoretic. Um, and for some reason, the, the Lord kind of out of the blue told me to study Origen specifically. And so I was just obedient. I didn't really know why, you know, at the time. And when I, when I started reading him, he contradicted himself horribly until I found out that his Greek works were his original. And then whenever they were translated into the Latin, everything was changed. Um, now, he, he actually quoted the Bible, I think, 17 or 18,000 verses um, in his writings. And so there's actually been people that have tried to piece together um, chapters of the Bible just from Origen's quotes. And a lot of times, specifically when it's talking about Yeshua being a literal son, um, all of his quotes line up with the Septuagint, and it was changed in the Masoretic, the 1008 AD. Um, and so I guess that's kind of where I'm, where I'm coming from. All right. So when you say okay, I want to I'll make sure when you say Masoretic in 1000 AD, you're including the New Testament. Um, no. Um, the the typical your typical okay. Bibles, you know, like your no, 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 no. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think you were, but I just wanted to say that to to clarify. Uh, okay. And yeah, so they're they're quoting from the Old Testament or the Tanakh, and and it you're saying that these old quotes match match way more closer to the Septuagint's writings than it does on the Masoretic writings. I get it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, Jason, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. This is Ranit. Um, so what you are saying is that um, I, I didn't get the name of this guy, the, the historian guy that you are uh, referring to. So basically his quotes match the Septuagint. So then you can assume that he took his quote from the Septuagint, right? I mean, that could be an assumption that he was using the Septuagint as his reference. Um, and um, the Septuagint is uh, a very very, very close to the Masoretic. I mean, every time I pick up a section and I compare, it's almost identical. Um, so in most cases, it's uh, very similar. And you have to realize that the people that um, translated at the time, translated from Hebrew to the Greek, uh, were uh, Jewish people that are, were Hellenized, okay, Hellenistic Jews in Alexandria, and they didn't speak fluent Greek. Their Greek is, I mean, I read a lot of research about the Greek of the Septuagint, and I, my understanding is that it's not the best uh, Greek, like nothing to write on about that Greek. Um, so it, the translation wasn't done uh, that great. Um, so you are still kind of like, it sounds to me like you're going in circles and it is possible that that historian was, uh, his quotes are similar because he was using the Septuagint as his, um, resource. Yeah. And some of it is a little bit strange. I actually believe, um, because Origen had, um, many, many copies of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, 
which I don't know if you'd want to call it the Masoretic or not. Um, yeah. And he actually, he actually uh, yeah. okay. And he actually made what what was called the Hexapala, which was a critical text of the Hebrew Old Testament, and he did include the Septuagint in there. Um, so I actually believe that he was reading from um, some of the oldest Hebrew Old Testaments um, available. The only problem is the the text that we have today from 1008 is not the same as what he was using. And uh, Rome seemed to have modified it uh, quite a few times by the time he hit 1008. And so the Septuagint being from around the year 350, give or take, um, is much closer to the old church father's quotes. Um, just because it was older and they didn't have as much time to, to change it. Um, and in the next section here, I, I have eight verses that I wanted to, to look at and compare. Um, some are from the New Testament. They're not all from the, the old. Um, but basically, all of these eight verses that I want to look at, they're using the, the oldest manuscripts from around the year 350, which have Greek old and new in them. And then I'm comparing it to the the Hebrew from 1008 and the uh, the Greek, uh, like the Texas Receptus, the King James Greek text from around 1100 AD. And I'm, basically, they didn't change the whole thing. It's They just wanted to change the things that went against the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, later on, um, I uncovered the ones that they tried to change against the feminine Ruach. So if you guys want to go to the next uh, document, um, the two Clive, I want to go over the just eight verses that uh, basically you can prove were modified in history, and you yep, can prove the, the motive. All right. So yeah, at the top of the document there, I do have um, the last three books that I wrote in a link forum discussing some of these things if if you want to look at anything farther um the first one there and would you want to read both these verses for me rob or not yeah are you saying exhibit one yes mm -hmm. all right so we got first john all right first john five seven for there are three that bear record in heaven the father the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And there are three, and these three agree in one. It's the KJV. And the NASB, 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. You see the huge difference in those two translations? Yeah, there's uh, obviously much more in the KJV than there is in the NASB. Yeah. And it's not a translator's mistake. Um, the Greek text that they used was from 1100 AD as opposed to 350 AD. 
Um, and I'm not going to go through um, all of these things. I, ba I basically looked up um, every one of those those Greek manuscripts that I was showing you on the other page to see which ones supported which. Um, and this passage was missing from manuscripts C and D, so those weren't included in here. But you can see the majority text, which is the King James. One of them agrees with this, and the other one disagrees. Of the oldest manuscripts, they're four to nothing in support of the original text, the NASB version. Um, this was this is actually one of the most blatant additions um, ever to the Bible. Really, not even you won't even hear. Uh, Trinitarians use this anymore because it's such an obvious uh, modification to the text. And then, Rob, do you want to read the uh, Exhibit 2 text for me? Sure. First Timothy 3.16, I will do KJV, and then I will do NASB. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. NASB. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now there again, Rob, do you see a, a major difference in the uh, the bolded letters in there? Well, yeah, you see God was manifest in the flesh, and the other one is he who was revealed in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this, again, is a change in the, the Greek text. It's not a translation mistake. Um, and even pastors that do not use the King James or New King James will still quote this verse saying that, that the Father walked the earth in the flesh um, when the real text says that Yeshua uh, walked the earth in the flesh. It's a big difference, and it, it really supports the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and if you look down down there at the uh, how it rates the majority text, both of the majority text uh, support support where it says God was manifest in the flesh, and then basically all of the oldest manuscripts um, support He was revealed in the flesh, um, which is another, in my opinion, a blatant change, not in the translations but in the Greek. See. Can we do Philippians? Yes, that'd be awesome. All right, I'll do Philippians 2 6. Same. Uh, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And ASB who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Interesting. 
you got the difference of thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Yeah. To versus did not regard equally with God a thing to be grasped. Yeah. They say exactly the opposite things, don't they? Yeah. Now, yeah. this one specifically is a, a translation um, dispute. So the Greek text is basically the same in both of these, um, but the KJV translators um, took extra liberty in this passage. Yeah. And you can okay. kind of see how that would support the Trinity too, can't you? Yeah, obviously, if it's a, it's the same text, just translated differently, then, uh, I mean, that's a great example of bias when it's translated differently uh, mm -hmm. based on the same text. So, yeah. All right, I can do next one. This is Romans 120. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. NASB, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So we see the differences here in the power and Godhead versus his eternal power and divine nature. Yeah, and this one again is, this is a not a, a Greek text uh, modification, but this is a translator uh, modification. And if you look, um, Godhead was never in uh, the Greek text. There's no Greek word in the Bible that, that says the word Godhead. But they actually made the Strong's Concordance off of the King James Bible and you will find um, Godhead in the Strongs for this this word, but basically it means divine nature. It does not mean Godhead, which is a Trinitarian uh, statement. And I believe it's the KJV uses the word Godhead three times um, in its translation, where most other Bibles, like the NESB, would just use divine divine nature or uh, like deity, but never the word. Godhead. Yeah, you, it makes me think of uh, we had a discussions last week on uh, the Hebrew word for roses and the translators favor and use lilies. And even looking it up in the Strong's, the Strong's lists the word as a lily, but mm -hmm. the, the, the word in Hebrew is a rose. So it's just interesting that um, you're bringing this stuff up, and we'll call it that the other week. That's cool. Yeah, they, the Strong's is definitely married to the the old King James Bible. Like they were, um, they worked in tandem together. All right, let me do Exhibit Five. Yes. All right, John one eighteen. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. NASB. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You skipped over the word God. Did I? Sorry. 
Oh, the oh yeah, yes, I did. Thank you. Yeah, so NASB is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, and the King James was the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. Thank you. Yeah. And and realistically, they both say the truth, but the the second one, the NASB, um, adds a whole nother level to it. Because if you really look up the word begotten, it does mean uh, to have like a son or daughter or to be created. And so it's calling Yeshua the only begotten God, um, which 100% goes against the doctrine of the Trinity. And yes. so you will find very few translations that actually use this, um, including, um, I think the NASB 95 got themselves in quite a bit of trouble because they went against the Trinity. So if you look up these verses in the NESB 2020, the new version, they have switched a lot of them back. Yeah. Um, but again, now this one is a Greek uh, text change. So the, the King James Greek text says son, and then the, uh, the Greek text behind the NESB says um, begotten God. So if you look down below, um, the majority text, both of the majority texts that I use in this study, um, supported the Nicene change, um, and then the of the oldest manuscripts that they're available, and you know sometimes they're it's illegible. Um, there's the four to one support of the original text in in the oldest manuscripts, um, along with some of the uh, papyrus fragments that they found, um, papyrus 66 and papyrus 75. And so I personally I can say with confidence that the original text. Um, was the only begotten God was in the bosom of the Father, and Origen also quotes this numerous times in his text as well. Yeah, and I want to comment on that. Is that uh, I mean that's the one thing that I don't know if people. Well, obviously if you're Trinitarian, you you just can't grasp grasp this. But if you just read the text and look at if you if there's a Father and there's a Son then uh why why would he why would he specifically say only begotten son and we are all called sons and daughters but he's yeah. only called the only begotten so mm -hmm. so if you understand that what he's saying here and especially with this verse that will also validate is that uh he's the only actual son of god like the, the a true like uh, offspring and mm -hmm. not like us, where we have been, uh, you know, created and made and born in this world, and then we are then adopted as as his child. Where Yeshua is the actual son. So I, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, and this actually clarifies. Uh, this first clarifies one level deeper because if he's the only begotten God, and then we are sons of God, it it shows a differentiation uh, there a little bit. I think. Well, that and how he has given us, raised us up to that level, you know, that's that's just awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you want to read the next one, Rob, uh, we're going to um, three quotes from the Old Testament. And this first one is a absolute um, horrible modification. Like, you, it's almost irrecognizable. All right. Okay, so I will be... Reading here from NASB and then into the Breton Septuagint in Psalms 110, verse 1. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch out your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely on the day of your power in holy splendor. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Septuagint Brenton's. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send out a rod of power for thee out of Sion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. With thee is dominion in the day of thy power, in the splendors of thy saints. I have forgotten thee from the womb before the morning. I'm sorry, I have begotten thee (laughs) from the womb before the morning. Interesting. And that's almost irrecognizable. Do you see how, like, I mean, you can see, like, womb of the dawn in the uh, the first version there. But, like, it's completely changed, like, just absolutely destroyed. Yeah, the womb of dawn and then before the morning. And then I, I have begotten thee from the womb. Yeah. And you can see how um, the Trinitarians would not appreciate this first being in there. Um, and so, I mean, I believe that Rome and the Vatican had um, basically control over a lot of these manuscripts. Um, so by the time it had gotten to the 1008 AD manuscript that we have, um, the Masoretic has, in this instance, I mean, most of the instances are just to do with Yeshua. Um, has removed his creation in here. And we'll get into it a little bit more later, but um, I talked to you about this the other day, Rob, that that verse where it says, I've begotten thee from the womb before the morning. Um, in Genesis, when God says, let there be light, and there was light, um, being the creation of Yeshua, um, following that, he says, there was morning, and there was evening the first day. And yep. that is referring to this morning. Exactly. The first morning. Yep. And, and the womb being the water, you know, that Yeshua was in the water. And so I've begotten thee from the womb before the morning and the evening the first day. Quick question. I didn't want to interrupt, but in the NASB there, you have it talking about the order of Meshelzedek, and then you cut out verse 4 with the Septuagint. Is that the same, or is that different? It is the same. I I should have had verse 4 for the Brenton, but it does say the same thing in the Brenton there, that you are a priest forever, according to Melchizedek. Okay, I just want to check. Yeah, good, yeah. good, good catch. Thank you. And yeah, this... That's oh, a great. Sorry. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, I just want to support that. That's a great verse. That that uh, it it definitely supports the Genesis one one um, mm-hmm. there at the beginning, with with more or less defining Yeshua being that. So uh, that's that's great. Yeah, and the reason that I came across a lot of these different texts is from reading pre Nicene church history where they would quote these things, and as I would read them, I. 
I would say to myself, this is not in the Bible. Like, and so I would have to find the reference for it. And time and time again, it would take me back to either the Septuagint uh, for the Old Testament um, or the oldest Greek manuscripts for the New Testament. But so this is definitely um, a translation uh, modification um, that the Masoretic was changed in this instance for the 1008 AD. All right. Yeah, if you want to go to Exhibit 7 then, Rob. All right. Sorry, my mouse was not working there. Okay. Oh, you're uh, good. Uh, Isaiah 9.6. I'm going to read the NASB and then the Breton Septuagint. For a child will be born to us. This is Isaiah 9.6. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his soldier, shoulders. And his name will be will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now in the Brenton, for a child is born to us, and a son is given given to us, whose government is upon his shoulder, and his name is called the Messenger of Great Counsel. For I will bring peace upon the princes and health to him. So big difference there, no mighty God or eternal father in, in that one. Yeah, and, and I'll admit when I first read this one, it, it really kind of hit me. You know, the first version there uh, with the NASB, we've all grown up with and we're all familiar with and it just sounds so normal. But when you really start to, to break down the doctrine of the Trinity and some of the Trinitarians will use this verse as a proof text, saying that he is called eternal father and mighty God, which is the highest God. Uh, therefore, that they are equal, that they are the same. Um, so when you go back then to the Septuagint and see that this was a modification to the text, I mean, because there's slight modifications where you can say that this was just a translation mistake or maybe uh, just a different inflection from the Hebrew or the Greek. But this is so much different that there is no way possible that these are using a uh, similar verbiage yeah yeah the uh just throw this out there as well the aramaic targum um also does not have a uh, father in it so just throwing a second witness there okay cool um jason just um so I just wanted to tell you regarding this verse. So, you know, the, the way the Hebrew Bible was written, there were no um, punctuation symbols originally. It was just mm -hmm. like basically no um, nothing. Like it's just letters and then that's it. Not even... Um, what we call Nikud, where they like the vowels, so no vowels, no, and then also no periods, no commas, nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so it, when I read this verse in Hebrew, it actually it 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 can be read in a different way because there are no commas and no nothing. Okay, so it mm -hmm. could be read also that his name will be. Um, Pele, which is like wonder, okay, 
Yoetz, uh, which is counselor. El, which is, um, it, you know, it could be a God with a capital G or God with a little g. Okay, so just El. And then Gibor, which is uh, Gibor, you know what it is. It's the, my, you know, Gibor is like a mighty, a warrior. Okay. Um, and then a, a eternal, um, like um, a father of eternity. And then um, a minister of peace. Okay. So basically, there are one, two, three, four, five, six adjectives um, attached to this sun. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. English translation is not exactly accurate. No, I, and, I totally agree with you on that. Um, yeah. Now, one, one of the things that I do believe that Rome did at times is they would add a lot of you know, adjectives, and they would go through kind of repeated things um, because most of the modified verses are extended, not shortened. Um, and so I personally believe that there was only one adjective in this verse um, instead of the the Masoretic text. But that, no, I mean, I, that could be up for debate. Uh, okay, I just read to you from the what you call Masoretic and I call Hebrew. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So I just mm -hmm. read to you and I translated, I kind of like um, did it like, um, I, I translated it on the spot from Hebrew to English. Mm -hmm. but, so I didn't understand what you just said. That I mean, I just read it to you and I told you there are several adjectives. No, no, no. I, I totally agree in, in the Hebrew that there is um, several adjectives. But what I'm saying is I believe that the... Subtuagent is the more accurate, and I realize it's a totally different language, but I believe the original text there was only one adjective in this verse. Is my my opinion is what I'm saying. So it's what you believe, right? So everyone can. I mean, it's a subjective mm -hmm. thing. Okay, so it's a subjective thing. Okay, just yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and okay. definitely, um, definitely encourage everyone to do their own research uh, as well, yeah. for sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah we, I just I just want to quickly stress uh, that yes, this is for everyone listening. This is Jason's presentation, and uh, so you know, reasoning dictates that this is what he believes. And uh, Jason, I think you should keep going. This is good stuff. Yeah, yeah, cool. and we and we appreciate that uh, you you encourage people to do their own research. This is uh, you sharing your research and what your findings are, and this will ho hopefully encourage others to go dig deeper into what, what they can find and what they see. So please, please continue. Yeah, awesome. Um, and of course, at the bottom of each of these, I have the, the verdict and it's, I'm not gonna read it all tonight because it's kind of boring, but it's basically the manuscript research that, that went behind some of these things. Um, and I just have eight in this uh, section here, but in my book, I put 27 in there of, blatant changes and they all had to do with the doctrine of the trinity essentially which it seemed like that was the biggest debate of the time and so you can see motives where once you started to realize what the motives were then you could you could sort of tell in most instances what text was modified 
almost from a, a motive, but as well from the the old historians that wrote before the Council of Nicaea, because they would quote uh, they would quote the verses um, in a way that did not follow the Trinity, and then uh, all of the writers after that um, started changing the way they quoted it, and they would usually quote in support of the Trinity. So that it seemed to be such a huge debate that they were willing to actually change the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, which is very unfortunate. So yeah, Rob, if you want to go to um, the last one there, Exhibit 8. All right, Jeremiah, uh, we'll do the uh, World English Bible Translation and then the Brenton. Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name by which he shall be called. Yahweh, our righteousness. Brenton's. In his days, both Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell securely. And this is his name, which the Lord shall call him, Josedek, among the prophets. So there's a big difference between Yahweh, our righteousness, and Josedek, among the prophets. Yeah, and uh, Josedek was a high priest, and so it was um, basically describing Yeshua as a high priest. Um, now, Jeremiah 23, 6 is a huge uh, proof text for Trinitarians. Um, and I'm sure you guys have all heard the song um, that says three in one, he is Yahweh. Um, a lot of that stuff comes from this specific verse saying that um, Yahweh and Yeshua are the same person. So... All right, well, we'll go on to the next um, section here. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about just a couple of the things that I found um, from Origin, um, because some of the things, to be honest, I wouldn't have stumbled upon by myself. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever had someone ask you a question, and that question has led you to hours and hours of digging and trying to figure out you know, what, what the truth is. Um, so yeah, just an opening here. The the Lord asked me to study uh, church history quite a long time ago, and in 2019, He specifically asked me to study the works of Origen, um, which kind of caught me off guard. But I wanted to be obedient. Um, the biggest problem I had, and I I think I mentioned it earlier, is that his writings strongly contradicted each other. Not just a little bit, but I mean major contradictions from one of Origen's writings to another one of his. Um, until I realized that his works that were translated into Latin, um, Jerome translated some of them, but a man named Rafinus actually spent 10 years of his life translating Origen's works because he wrote just a mountain of, uh, of works. And he was actually, um, uh, he was actually a Bible teacher. I mean, he, he didn't just write nice stories like he, he taught the word. Um, now, in 553 AD, Emperor Justinian ordered all of Origen's Greek works to be destroyed at the Second Council of Constantinople. Um, and so we don't have a whole lot of his, his Greek uh, writings left because, you know, they were ordered to be burned, essentially. Now, funny enough, 
uh, Rafinus's Latin translations of Origen's works, those were never ordered to be destroyed because they went along with the Trinity. Um, and so when I did my study, I would only study those uh, Origen's works in the Greek, which I believe are the original. Okay. Now, this, this is actually a quote from Rufinus's mouth. Um, this first quote here, um, he translated Origen's on first principles. Now, listen here to how he admits what he did. Um, and therefore, that I might not find you too grievous and exactor, I gave way even contrary to my resolution on the condition and arrangement, however, that in my translation I should follow as far as possible the rule observed by my predecessors, especially by that distinguished man whom I have mentioned above, who after translating it into Latin, more than 70 of those treatises of origin, which are styled homilies in a considerable, considerable number of his writings on the apostles, in which stood a good many stumbling blocks are not found in the original Greek, so smooth and corrected them in his translation that a Latin reader would meet nothing which could appear discordant with, with our belief. His example, therefore, we follow to the best of our ability. And so Rufinus there is referencing Jerome, who had translated Origen. But if you see the bold there, um, both of them took all the stumbling blocks that a Latin reader would find discordant with their belief, and they smoothed them over and corrected them. Which, if you if you read history, what that means is anything that went against um, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, what do you think about that one, Rob, as far as if if you were to write something and someone would modify it to that level? Well, yeah, it goes back to that the whole translator bias piece. Um, and that is part of, um, you know, researching what is written in here. And what what's what's very challenging and also uh, alarming is that the if if the scriptures that we are reading or the ones that we like and enjoy and and uh, uh, are are digging into may have been some alterations to it, it 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 becomes alarming you know what what is correct what is not etc and mm -hmm. so so if anyone's listening and and thinking that um i i always met i always say uh understand the foundation understand the message understand what is what is being said and be obedient and follow that and then the rest of this stuff dig into research and uh, uh, go to understand it as as good as you can on this side of it, because when I, I know when I looked at scriptures and and people would point out things, especially I mean, just take the basics, King James, and you look up the Hebrew and or Greek, and you discover well that word really didn't mean that it means this. Well, once you make one change, or if you're a preacher or pastor or teacher and and you're basically stating that this verse was translated wrong <laughs> in the Bible, then it's then it makes you wonder about everything else, and then also makes you wonder if if it's just outdated, it was a poor translation, etc. Now, does that mean you throw it all out or you question it all? I mean, 
well, you should research it all and look into it all to uh, validate it. But um, that's what's key. That's what's part of what we do if we are researching and seeking out truth. We want to read what we're reading and validate it. So I just wanted to add that to it because it can be discouraging uh, hearing some of this information for anyone that's um, uh, not a researcher and and just taking and believing whatever specific translation that they're believing and uh, just just you know dig deeper into it. May I add yeah, I, I, uh, something um, as well? Yeah. yeah. Uh, great stuff, Jason. Thank you very much for the for your research. I just wanted to add something which was very intriguing, uh, especially when you mentioned the origin as well. Um, maybe may, maybe you can take into account uh, some research about the, um, was it the divine councils of the Orthodox Church? Uh, there were, I think, all in all seven uh, of them. Mm -hmm. But if we, in, if we exclude the latest, the eight and the nine, I would say that there were all in all seven. And the first divine council was done in uh, 325. And let mm -hmm. me just paste really quickly something on the on the group chat. So basically, as you as you read there, uh, the first ecumenical council, uh, they took some decisions, and this is where things actually went kind of the way of things were a little bit um, uncertain in terms of uh, the nature of Christ, which actually goes hand in hand with mm -hmm. what what you just explained, especially yeah, because yeah. it was done on the three twenty five date. Mm -hmm. And if I if I paste the second as well, uh, you will see that um, things take a course for towards the Trinitarian dogma. So I would agree with a lot of I would agree with what you're saying that you know this goes hand in hand uh, and it's actually reflected on on decisions that actually people made on that time. And strangely enough, I, I believe that. Whenever people were, were actually called to translate text texts during those era, on on those on those time on the on the from three twenty five and afterwards, I think they had the pressure from their peers, from the higher peers, to kind of put the proper doctrine in their scriptural or in their uh, translation. Yeah. So yeah. The, there was a pressure, and there is a pressure, and I I see the same pressure in the Orthodox Church today. They are not allowed, for example, to speak uh, for some things. For example, they don't they don't even know in Greece. For example, they don't even know the word Yahweh. If you tell them what's the name of the mo, it's God, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's uh, which is translated Theos in Greece. Um, they never learned to differentiate, and because they called Yeshua Lord, and they called God Lord. This split of things, this, uh, you know, they kind of merged these names together. So, you know, this brought them uh, to the state where they are today because they believe in a trinity. And if they called God Yahweh, the Father Yahweh, and if they called Yeshua, uh, if they called uh, Yeshua not Lord, but Yeshua, then people will question the Trinity and just, just it, it starts yeah, also it, from the, from it, the it name. It cuts out the confusion when you do that, when, can I, when you call can them I, by their names. 
Can yeah. I jump in really quickly? Um, if everyone, if it's possible, if we could hold our comments off towards the end, this is really fascinating stuff. And Jason, I'd really like you to get through this. Uh, I'd like to see more of your presentation. So okay. um, let's go for it. All right. Yeah. And just to answer Andy real quick, um, I do have a lot of information on church history in, in my first book, especially Nicene Council and the 381 Council. Um, but I didn't have it in this specific study. But but yeah, I, I'm totally with you 100% on that. Uh, Rob, would you want to read? Um, I And I'll preface it real quick here. Um, these are the exact same writings of origin, but the first one is what they found from his original Greek, and the second one is Rafinus' translation of origin for Exhibit 1. All right, I'll read the exhibit, the, the original, and then uh, afterwards I'll do the Latin translation. In the same way, therefore, I consider that in the case of the Savior, it would be right to say that he is an image of God's goodness, but not goodness itself. And perhaps also the Son, while being good, is yet not good purely and simply, and just as he is the image of the invisible God, and in virtue of this is himself God, and yet is not he of whom Christ himself says, that they may know thee, the only true God, so he is the image of the goodness, and yet not as the Father is, good without qualification. And then in the Latin, for there is no other second goodness existing in the Son, save that which is in the Father. And therefore also the Savior himself rightly says in the Gospel, there is none good save only one, save one only, God the Father, that by such an expression it may be understood that the Son is not of the different goodness but of that only which exists in the Father, of whom he is rightly termed the image, because he proceeds from no other source but from the primal goodness, lest there might appear to be in the Son a different goodness from that which is in the Father, nor is there any dissimilarity or difference of goodness in the Son. Do you see a huge difference, Rob? And, yeah, yeah and it doesn't. Those. Yeah. Yeah, that's a horrible translation if that was a, a translation uh, into another language, but yeah. Yeah, and, you know, ones like that, it's it's obvious that it's not just um, a discrepancy over how to translate a, a word, but uh, in the first one, Origen is 100% saying that the Father is greater uh, than the Son. And Rafinus, he is careful to word it, you know, that there's no other second goodness, um, that they are, uh, there's no dissimilarity, no difference. Um, they're identical. You can yeah, see a, a Trinitarian slant, can't you? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the sun is not of a different goodness. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a, yeah, it's lining up that bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I may have maybe 20 of these. I just put a couple of the main ones in here, but there's a lot of these times um, where Rafinus changed. And he didn't just change Origins works. He changed Eusebius and some other people 
their goal was to destroy all the originals. Um, and then if most of the stuff that got translated into Latin, um, they had modified for their uh, Trinitarian sake. If you want to read the uh, exhibit two, then. All right, I will do the or origins, original Greek version. But if the Father comprehends all things and the Son is among all things, it is clear that he comprehends the Son. But someone will inquire whether it is true that God is known by himself in the same way in which he is known by the only begotten. And he will decide that the saying, quote, my father who sent me is greater than I, end quote, I is true in all respects, so that even in his knowledge, the father is greater and is known more clearly and perfectly by himself than by the son. The Latin translation is much shorter. For the nature is known to itself alone. The Father alone knows the Son, and the Son alone knows the Father, and the Holy Spirit alone searches out even the depths of God. And you see how he, he just cut a huge chunk of it out of there because it, it didn't suit his doctrine? Well... Yeah, if this was a literal translation, then he yeah he obviously had to cut that out because it would have been probably blatant to change that. Too blatant. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't put it in here, but um, I actually have a lot of quotes from translators and historians that have translated um, both Rufinus's Latin translations and Origins Original Greek. And they pretty much all say 100% the same thing that Rufinus did a literal translation of all of his works except for when it went against the Trinity. And then he would highly modify it to go along with their belief set. All right. All right. Um, I'll read this next one here. Um, as I was reading through Origin, there was a few thoughts of where it would really... Um, just really hit me and um some things that i had never read before never thought before and i uh i'll let you guys in on something too that i've studied the the falsehoods of the trinity for a long time but i've often told the people that i argue with the best verse for you to argue with is john uh chapter one verses um one to four, basically. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Um, I said because that is a hard verse to argue against, and it seems like it's it goes along with the Trinity. I no longer believe that, but um, it it was always a verse that perplexed me. And this is going to add a little bit of clarification to it here. Um, so this is. Um, this is what Origen wrote um, doing a commentary on the Gospel of John. And he wrote this in 233 AD. So this was almost 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. And they were allowed to write in any way they wanted to at that point. I mean, there, there was no um, Constantine, no Roman emperor that, that made him do a, a certain thing. All right, so it says, This is what John suggested when he said about the word, That which was made was life in him. Life then came in the word. And on one side, the word is no other than the Christ, the word, 
he who was with the Father by whom all things were made, while on the other side the life is no other than the Son of God who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As then life came into being in the Word, so the Word in the ark. And when these guys had translated this, there was no real good English word to translate for the ark. So I, um, if I'm pronouncing that right, so I, I did put the translation in there that um, it means beginning, origin, source of action, um, first principle, element. Um, now, the crazy thing to me is this did not sound like the uh, John chapter 1 that I was familiar with. But do you notice how many times he he repeats it um, as far as when he says that which was made was life in him? And so I have the question next there, um, where is this in the Bible? You know, as soon as I read this from origin, I'm like, what is happening here? Like, I, I have never read this before. Um, are you trying to tell me that they changed um, the Gospel of John? Um, do you want to read these three different versions then, Rob? Yeah, uh, I will read these three. NASB, then the NRSV, and then uh, Origins Origin. Commentary on the, the, this verse and, and verse 4. All right, John 1, 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And our SV is, all things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Then Origen's uh, quote of John 1, 3 to 4 was, what was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. It says a lot a lot different thing than the original text, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and so when I started studying this, um, you see how the, uh, the period is in a different place there. And... Just to also let you guys know, they there were no verse numbers in the Greek either. Um, I believe it was in 1550 when they did the Stephanus Greek text is when they added the verse numbers. Um, I'd want to look that up to be 100%. Um, and that, that text basically eventually became the Texas Receptus. There was a few different people that made some slight changes to things. but um, So they put uh, the verse numbers in there, and so... Essentially, they, they could change some of these things. Now, if you look at the, um, at the bottom here where it has the text that agree or disagree with it, um, there's three that don't agree or disagree because a lot of the oldest texts, it's true, there was no punctuation in it. Uh, now, later on, um, they did start adding it to you know, where they believed it should be. Um, the majority text slash Texas Receptus um, both support the Nicene change. The craziest thing to me, and you can look this up, um, of the texts that have a, a period in there of the Nestle Allen 28th edition and the five great uh, uncles, they're three to, not, three to nothing in support of the period being where origin says it should be. Um, and so you can see 
uh, from the bold letters in those first two verses, how changing the period completely changes the meaning of the sentence. Yep, absolutely. And so, um, basically, it's saying the word always existed, but there, and I'll elaborate on this a little bit more later, so I shouldn't get too deep in it, but there was a moment in time when life came in the word as a separate being, um, which is amazing. And um, Origen quotes this numerous times, um, and I actually have a document of all of the early church fathers, I think from around the year 200, actually even some in the 100s, and they all quote it this way, until you hit a certain moment in time, and then it starts to be a little divided, and then everyone starts quoting it the way we have it today. And so you can actually prove it through history. Unfortunately, even though the Nestle Allen has it in here the, the correct way, um, the only translation I've found that supports this is the NRSV. And you can see how that would go strongly against the doctrine of the Trinity. Would you agree with that, Rob? Well, yes. Uh, uh, it, it, yeah, it does. You know, any of the verses, you know, basically saying that Yeshua was created um, is going to be a huge, um, it's, it's going to go strongly against the doctrine. Now, I want, I want to focus real quick. Um, on the NRSV version, it says, what has come into being in him was life. So just kind of remember that phrasing there, what has come into being in him was life. Now, I'm going to go to, um, I'm actually going to, I'll skip that, uh, NASB Genesis. Um, I think you guys are all familiar with that verse. Um, but I'm going to read the NETS Septuagint here and look at how closely the verbiage goes together with uh, the NRSV. In the beginning, God made the sky and the earth, yet the earth was invisible and unformed, and darkness was over the abyss, and a divine wind was being carried along over the water. And God said, Let light come into being, and light came into being. And God saw the light that it was good. God separated between the light and between the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night, and, and it became evening and it became morning, day one. And so there you have the, the NRSV saying what is coming to being in him was life. And then the NETS Septuagint where it says let light come into being. Um, and you guys are probably familiar with this, but when John in the start of his gospel says in the beginning was the word, he was actually referencing Genesis 1.1 saying in the beginning, you know, because if, if light was the word, um, and that wasn't the only thing he's referencing because the verbiage is so similar there to when Yeshua was created. Um, you know, I want to look too here at the, um, the scripture for all, um, interlinear, just that, um, that top line there. Um, and it says, and it, of course it's a little choppy because they're doing an exact word for word. Um, but it says, and he is saying Elohim. He shall become light, and he is becoming light. And so you can see again there, it it really alludes to Yeshua's creation. Um, 
in Genesis chapter 1. And then, of course, you guys know that the sun and the moon were not made until day four. Um, so if you have if you have the light being created, the light had to be something other than the sun and the moon. And then I love uh, Revelation twenty two twenty two um, because we're not going to have the sun and the moon, you know, in the uh, the new heaven and the new earth. It says, "I saw no temple in it." For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so it's saying that um, Yahweh is the light, and then the lesser light is the Lamb. Again, showing a difference in uh, authority, a difference in, in greatness. Nice. And uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about reading Origin and some of the pre-Nicene writers, they always called Yahweh the unsearchable light and Yeshua the light we can see. And so as he is in the image of God, but he is in a form that we can at least somewhat see, um, Yahweh is so far above that he's unsearchable. And they also called Yahweh the unbegotten God and Yeshua, the only begotten God. And I'm, I would ask you this, Rob, if you've heard the term unbegotten God recently, because they sort of banned that terminology around the time of the Council of Nicaea, and you don't find it in writings anymore. Yeah, I don't find that, that term common anywhere. Um, no. And it was, um, it really was a, um, a tough argument at the Council of Nicaea um, to come against, you know, because when you're referencing the unbegotten God and the begotten God, it shows an obvious difference in that. Um, I just want to do a quick look at um, the transference of life because um, Yeshua, life was placed in Yeshua, and then he became the light of, of all men, and everything happened from there. Um, so yeah, in that first verse, it says, what was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. And then in John 5.26, it says, for just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And I believe that's again referencing uh, John chapter 1. Um, and then you move on to Adam and Eve. And it says, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust, or of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Septuagint, um, at least some of the versions, um, have a different uh, name for Eve. Genesis 3.20, out of the Brenton Septuagint, and Adam called the name of his wife Life, because she was the mother of all the living. And so if life was made in Yeshua because the Father had it in John 5, 26, and he gave the Son to have life, and then Adam was created with the breath of life or the Ruach, um, and then he names his wife life because she's the mother of all the living. It's just uh, really cool how it all flows together there, you know. 
All right. Um, now I'll move on to uh, Origen and Jerome. Uh, they quote the Gospel of the Hebrews um, in their text. And as I was reading these quotes for the first time, I was arguing with them because they went against everything that I had been taught, at least for the most part. And so I would try to, usually, you know, when I read something like that, I try to go to the scripture, try to research. I kind of argue verses back and forth in my head. I'm sure you guys have probably all done that at times. So Jerome, um, in his commentary on Isaiah, which was written between 408 and 410 AD, uh, he says, in the gospel of the Hebrews that the Nazarenes read, it says, now, no one should be offended by this because spirit in Hebrew is feminine, while in our language, which is Latin, it is masculine, and in Greek, it is neuter. In divinity, however, there is no gender. Um, now, I don't necessarily agree with his entire statement, but um, it led me on a track, um, you know, to try to find out what was going on. And I will preface this, too, that Jerome did the Latin Vulgate in the year 400 AD, approximately. There's uh, a few people believe, I, some say 405, um, but it was the most prominent version of the Bible until 1530 AD, which is over 1,100 years. So if Ruach um, was translated into Latin as a masculine word for 1,100 years, you can see how things would get changed over time. Um, so it, as I was reading that, I'm like, that seems like a a huge contradiction, you know, and, and I'm running John 14, 15, 16 um, through my mind because, you know, obviously it calls the spirit of he in those uh, those versions. Now, I came across then um, scripture for all for all org, the interlinear uh, Bible. And. Ruach obviously is a feminine. Uh, feminine word, and like we said, it was translated into Greek, which is neuter, so it's kind of, you're kind of starting to make a change there, and then it makes the full change going into Latin as far as the masculine. So if you go to Job 33.4 there, um, the regular translation says, the Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. If you go to the interlinear, it says, the Spirit of El, she made me, the breath of who suffices, she is keeping me alive. Does that sound a lot different, Rob? Oh yeah, yeah. I I definitely have seen these these uh, translations such as such as these, so it doesn't surprise me. But yeah, it's definitely different. Yeah, it, uh, it was it's kind of neat seeing some of these different confirmations. Um, because to be honest, when I first started reading some of these things and studying the feminine, feminine Ruach, I was nervous and I didn't want to be off. I mean, a lot of my life, I have sought uh, the presence of Ruach and just spent hours in worship. And um, my heart has never been to do anything against her. And so I was, I really wanted to study to show myself approved because I, just for my personal self, I didn't want to do anything that would would harm her. Um, so I'll go to Psalms uh, 143.10. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God, thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. 
and then you go into the uh, interlinear uh, teach you me uh, to do of approval of you that you Elohim of me spirit of you she shall guide me in the land of the upright so again um, you know calling Ruach uh, she is a, is a feminine uh, so now I'm going to go to the next quote um, in church history on uh, the gospel of the Hebrews this is from Jerome's commentary on Isaiah again, uh, written between 408 and 410 AD. Um, and a lot of these are I cut out of my books, um, and I tried to put exact dates as close as I could, and then references um, for everything because I I don't want someone to say that you're just pulling this out of your hat. I'm trying to give. Um, you know, legit information that you can look in history and, and you can look up for yourself. And so I would definitely encourage everyone to, to look these things up for themselves. Uh, so then this one here in the Hebrew Gospels that the Nazarenes read, it says, When the Lord ascended from the water, the whole fount of the Holy Spirit descended and rested upon him and said to him, My son and all the prophets, I was waiting for you, that you might come, that I might rest in you. For you are my rest, and you are my firstborn son who reigns forever. And that absolutely floored me when I first read that because I always thought that the Father said that. I mean, that's what we've always been taught. Um, but Jerome is saying that the Holy Spirit said, My son, in all the prophets I was waiting for you, that you might come, that I might rest in you. Now, notice there... Uh, Two different times in that verse, um, the emphasis on rest and that the Holy Spirit wanted to rest in her son, Yeshua. And so, again, I have contradiction in there. I, you know, does that go against Scripture? And so I wanted to read and find out, you know, what does the Bible have to say about this? Um, so you go to Isaiah 11:2, and it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so again, you have a confirmation. Um, the Holy Spirit wanted to rest upon her son. And then to top it all off, you go to the interlinear again uh, of Isaiah 11:2, and it says, And she rests on him, the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and mastery, spirit of knowledge and fear of Yahweh. And so that theme of resting just comes up over and over again. And the other thing I did is I wanted to go back to Matthew because I'm like, surely it says the Father is the one that said said this, right? And so when I'm reading Matthew 3.16, which I'll, I'll read there out of the NASB, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so it never says who. And this is just my opinion. Um, I don't have uh, any research to prove this, but I believe that when they, um, when they change this text, because I do believe that the, the first one I read is the original text, um, you know, where it says the Holy Spirit is the one that said these things. Um, they they didn't have the audacity to change it so much to say the Father said it. 
All they did was they had the audacity to remove Ruach's voice, essentially. Um, and so they just said some voice from heaven said this, and they didn't say who, um, which I don't know that that's any better, you know, because I would never want to change um, a text like that. And then I want to read this too out of the Shem Tov, the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew, um, because the wording of it sounds very feminine when you read it. Immediately when he came up from the water, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove, and it dwelled upon him. Then, behold, a voice from heaven was saying, This is my Son, my Beloved. He is loved very, very much, and my pleasure is in him. So, what did you think about those there, Rob, with uh, the difference with the Shem Tov and the NASB, and then what uh, Jerome said? Yeah, well, obviously you're seeing some differences here on the NASB and and version and the Hebrew version of Matthew mm -hmm. uh, there. And when when you have J Jerome quoting and it not lining up with what we, we've been reading is just makes it very intriguing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I see how and where you're you're coming from and where you're going with this and 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 shining a light on this. So I think it's um, it's some great stuff for people to look into and 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 dig into it deeper, because I know one thing that anytime you're going to bring up something that goes against mainstream thinking and understanding, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to get resistance, which is natural and which is is a good reaction. Um, but I pray that everyone uh, does so with with love and showing fruits of the spirit and do do their research and dig into it themselves to see where it may lead them. But yeah, I see I see that I see I see where you're showing here. Good stuff. Yeah, and I should throw in the disclaimer here too. Um, my goal is obviously not to harm anyone's faith at all um, or anyone's faith in the scriptures. Um, just so you guys know, at least from the research that I've done personally, most of the Bible is accurate in all translations, all manuscripts, except for the family of God. For some reason, they wanted to delete the family of God from the Bible. And so most of the things are translated literally and will line up unless it affects the family of God. It's not a um, a salvation issue. It's discovering who our, our family is. Uh, that's a good point, because I think upon Michael and I's investigation in this, that the, that, that the father led us down this road on this specific topic, is that's what we, we come to that similar conclusion that uh, we're, it's not changing uh the the salvation the understanding of of the 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 of the foundation it's changing or not changing but giving us light and better understanding of the family of of yah how we came to be and our position in that and understanding uh his position you know him being the father there's a son well mm -hmm. 
you know, just it just makes you start thinking. And and can we find that in scripture? And as we were we ourselves were looking into it, we could see these these clues. And like you said, it, yeah, you have to really search to find those clues. And you're going, you're searching against the mainstream narrative. So obviously you're going to be getting doors shut on you left and right, and you're going to get a lot of criticism. But if you honestly just yeah. look at the scriptures and evaluate them, you will see, you will see, you will see. Yeah, no, very true. And, and I do believe that um, for anyone that researches um, a little bit, the Trinity is a very easy thing to, to prove wrong. Um, the Ruach, on the other hand, is buried a level deeper. And so that is not quite such an easy thing to, to prove wrong without some uh, more serious uh, inspection. All right, so I'll move on to Exhibit 3. Um, and this is Origen now, uh, his commentary on the Gospel of John, written in 233. And it says, Those who give credence to the Gospel of the Hebrews, in which the Savior says, just now my mother, the Holy Spirit, took me by one of my hairs and brought me to Tabor, the great mountain. And that verse absolutely floored me. And I, I didn't believe it at first. I, I didn't believe it as truth. Um, I was trying to research and prove it wrong, in fact. Um, and I had a hard time doing it. But it, just in fairness, so you guys know this, Origen um, quotes the Holy Spirit um, in a masculine form, but he does reveal uh, text in his writings that he had that, that said the Holy Spirit was feminine, just to give you that disclaimer. Um, now, this goes along with um, Matthew 4 1, um, and it says, This is the NESB here. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then if you look at the Shem Tov, it says, then Jesus was taken by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And so again here, I'm thinking this is a huge contradiction in Scripture. But then, especially if you look at the Shem Tov, um, it says the Holy Spirit, my mother, the Holy Spirit, you know, from, the, sorry, this is going back to uh, origin. Just now my mother, the Holy Spirit, took me by one of my hairs and brought me to Tabor, the great mountain. And then the Shem Tov says Jesus was taken by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. They seem to go very closely together. And I, I couldn't, um, you know, 100% prove that wrong. Yeah, so so you're tying in uh, Matthew 4.1 with uh, the the Gospel of Hebrews. And mm -hmm. and. As you mentioned, there is going to be a lot of people that will just throw that gospel uh, in the trash. But yeah, I know mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Yeah, and and as you read the Gospel of Matthew, um, you know, right after Yeshua was uh, baptized, um, and the Spirit uh, came on him like a dove, he was led to the wilderness immediately. And so, essentially, these verses go in succession with each other. All right, so I'll read the last one in here. Um, this is from Jerome. Uh, his commentary on Micah, written uh, between 390 and 406. He did a lot of works kind of in that time, and they don't have an exact year. Whoever has read the Song of Songs will understand that the Word of God is also the bridegroom of the soul, and whoever gives credence to the gospel circulating under the title Gospel of the Hebrews, which we recently translated because he went 
um, to Origen's library, um, in which it is said by the Savior himself, Just now my mother, the Holy Spirit, took me by one of my hairs. Will not hesitate to say that the word of God proceeds from the Spirit, and that the soul, which is the bride of the word, has the Holy Spirit, which in Hebrew is feminine in gender, ruach, as a mother-in-law. And I'm not saying I 100% agree with Jerome's statement, but you know he's basically saying that as we marry um, Yeshua, that Ruach is our mother-in-law, and I would just call her mother. I wouldn't say mother-in-law, but um, you still get where where Jerome is going with that. Um, and I will give the disclaimer too. Um, Jerome and Origen didn't live in the same time period. Um, but Origen's library was passed down. Um, Pamphilus uh, was in that same library in Alexandria, and then Eusebius uh, of Caesarea was in that same library. And so Jerome had access to the Gospel of the Hebrews from that library. Well, where people are going to have a hard time is 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 in the comment of the Ruach being the mother, uh, mm -hmm. because if if you reconcile scripture and you see that when we are, quote, born again, uh, we are born in the spirit. And so being so in order for us to uh, be born again, the spirit, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So we go, mm -hmm. we, you know, we have the spirit of baptism that we have this, uh, the, we have the baptism of water and then we have the baptism of spirit. Mm -hmm. And so. In the earthly realm, as I describe it, we are born through a female, the, our mother, um, in the flesh. And then in the spiritual, we are born through the Ruach HaKodesh. So that mm -hmm. would answer that question or point to that description of being, you know, the spiritual mother. So I don't, yeah. see, I don't see any issue with, you know, terming it that way. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. Um... Yeah, it, it can be uh, an offensive subject. Um, and I guess for me, too, I always look at people's motives um, because a lot of people, they may disagree as long as they're disagreeing with their motive is to honor uh, Yahweh and to honor the Lord with all of their heart. Um, I don't see them as an enemy because they're, they still love the Lord. They just have a different understanding um, than I do it. You know, you can obviously tell when someone is is trying to go against the Lord um, or if they're doing it because they think it honors the Lord. Thank you for saying that. That's a very good point, because uh, I, I know what led me down this road I was strictly wanting to know, just wanting to know the Father, wanting to know uh, the Ruach and and know the truth. I had no agenda of trying to prove anything right or wrong, and mm -hmm. and it's led me here. So I, I I pray and hope everyone else does because we're all born with usually usually there's some type of bias within us from some kind of indoctrination, some kind of teaching, some kind of influence, and um, I challenge everyone to be open minded and and searching things out that way with uh, with no bias. So thanks for saying that. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, the next section here, um, I have 40 verses that uh, reveal the identity of wisdom. Um, and there there are a lot of passages in here from uh, the Book of Wisdom and from the Book of Sirach, which are in many different apocryphas and 
the Septuagint, a lot of different texts. Um, and so I do utilize those a lot. Um, do you want to read that first passage, Rob, in First Corinthians? Yeah, sure. We are on page eight of the PDF. And uh, just FYI, we're at like 1050 right now. So uh, um, I, I doubt we're going to be able to go through all of this for sure. But uh, yeah, I can read this. And then at some point, uh, I guess, Noel, we can pick a time to stop and then maybe do a part two, perhaps. Uh, but yeah, I can read this. Yeah, before you start, so this would be a good time just to, Jason, think about where you would like to cut this off, because we usually go, you know, two hours really with our presentations, and then, you know, we can always pick it up later. So just something to think about. Okay. Yeah, so just pick off where you'd like to stop here in the next, you know, 15 minutes or so. All right, 1 Corinthians 2, 4. And my message... And my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do not, sorry, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. NASB. Yeah, and notice how many times in there he is, uh, Paul is comparing um, human wisdom with the wisdom from above. Um, and even saying that we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. A lot of these, uh, it's not the only time that Paul says something that, like that referring to uh, Ruach. Um, but just over and over again in that text, you know, there's human wisdom and then there's things taught by the spirit. Um, and I believe that also goes back to um, the garden that, you know, I believe that the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the knowledge of human wisdom. Um, and then, yeah. you know, the tree of, of wisdom, essentially, um, or the tree of Ruach. Yeah, of the as as we just mentioned, the wisdom from above. So yeah, yeah. All right, now I want to look at, um, and these are some uh, good proof texts, I believe, on uh, discussing who wisdom is. Um, now I want you to focus on a couple things as we're reading through here. The translators get to decide what words they capitalize and what words they lowercase, and so if they if the translators don't believe that it's talking about um, the Holy Spirit, they can lowercase it. It doesn't mean that it's not about the Holy Spirit. Um, so yeah, this first one, Exodus 28.2, um, you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You'll, you shall speak to all the skillful, skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he, he may minister as a priest to me. And if you noticed in there, 
I have it in bold, the spirit of wisdom is all in lowercase um, because the translators do not want to correlate uh, wisdom with Ruach. It's, uh, for one, it's very damaging to the doctrine of the Trinity, and two, it reveals the, the family of God. Now, in Exodus 31, and it's obvious it's the same spirit that is um, giving all these um, men the same gifts to build all of this, all the things um, for the tabernacle. Um, Exodus 31.1, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all kinds of workmanship to devise skillful works to work in gold and in silver and bronze and in cutting of stones for setting and in carving of wood to work in all kinds of workmanship. Now notice they capitalize that there that because it says um, Spirit of God, they're okay capitalizing it, which they should, as the one that's giving uh, these people the gifts uh, to make things for the tabernacle. And it does give you that little clue at the end there. It says, in wisdom and in understanding, I believe that a lot of those things are attributes of Ruach. Um, and then we'll go down to the, another one here in Exodus 36, because it all kind of goes together. Bezalel and Aholiab shall work with every wise-hearted man in whom Yahweh has put uh, wisdom and understanding to know how to do all the work for the service of the sanctuary, according to all that Yahweh has commanded. Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man in whose heart Yahweh had put wisdom even everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work to do it. Um, you know, some might just think that that's a figure of speech, but I believe when it's saying that Yahweh put wisdom in their hearts, that they were filled with Ruach to, to build the things for the temple. Do you track with that, Rob? Yeah, I do. Uh, I Obviously, with the 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 ruach guiding them because if he's putting this uh wisdom within these people it's giving them uh that that knowing on what to do for the proper uh, uh craftsmanship uh for things for the temple yeah and i i just find it so interesting how they choose over and over uh, what words to capitalize and what words not to. Um, so now I'm going to go down to Numbers 11, 16, um, talking about Moses having the Spirit upon him. Uh, Yahweh said to Moses, uh, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come down and talk with you there. I will take the spirit which is on you, and I will put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you don't uh, bear it yourself alone. Um, and so this is saying here, because I'm going to put this all together, that the Lord is going to take the spirit which is on Moses and put it on the people. And so we're trying to prove what spirit, which uh, we all know it's the Holy Spirit, but what spirit is on Moses? Now, Wisdom 10.15, uh, 
says a holy people in a blameless race, wisdom delivered from a nation of oppressors. She entered the soul of a servant of the Lord and withstood dread kings with wonders and signs. And as you read through that text, it's extremely obvious that that is about uh, Moses. I probably should have put another couple of verses past that. Um, but this here now, watch in Deuteronomy 34, they're going to lowercase spirit of wisdom because they don't want um, to equate wisdom and Ruach together. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his strength gone. The children of Israel, Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the days of weeping in the morning for Moses were ended. Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. The children of Israel listened to him and did as Yahweh commanded Moses. Which, I mean, I don't know how anyone could say that that is not um, the Holy Spirit, that um, Joshua received the spirit of wisdom because Moses laid his hands on him. And it's so cool to me that that is the same way they taught it in the New Testament, you know, that as the apostles uh, laid their hands on the believers, they would receive the Holy Spirit, um, so much so that Simon the sorcerer wanted to buy that power. Yeah. Well, yeah, with deductive reasoning, it would be that the spirit of wisdom is not the Ruach HaKodesh, then it is another spirit and and then you know then you have to examine scriptures and seeing what roles or when mentioning the the holy spirit what is it referencing to and about and what mm -hmm. you know how how is that fitting or is it uh referencing somewhat one and the same so the, yeah those are things people have to reconcile when yeah when when reading this because uh that's that's what I find myself with is 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 I'm still still wondering um, as I continue this research is could the spirit of wisdom be a separate spirit than the Ruach HaKodesh when it's mentioned or is it the same or is the Ruach HaKodesh uh, mentioned for just in in general speaking like uh it's it's a set apart spirit and it could be one of many spirits of yah you know those those are some things mm -hmm. that just make me wonder yeah and it's uh definitely something for everyone to study for themselves and yeah. and decide what uh what scripture says about it yeah um, and, and i would say keep uh let's stop at the end of first kings before you move into the next section let's do that yeah that'll work all right um and yeah just to preface this section here um i always thought that solomon just received intelligence i just mm -hmm. you know that uh, people traveled a long ways to see how smart he was um which really if you really think about it doesn't make a whole ton of sense you know like if you if some guy was a genius would you travel um you know 14 hours away to see this guy that was a genius or would you travel that way because he was anointed with the Spirit of God? And so some of these passages really, um, I believe, show that um, he didn't just ask for wisdom. He asked for the Ruach. Um, and obviously his father David um, had the Ruach uh, in him. 
And so I, I believe that he knew from early age that, that was something that he wanted to have as well, um, that anointing upon his life. Um, so 1 Kings uh, 5.12, Yahweh gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And again, it, I believe that that should be capitalized there, but uh, the translators um, decided to uh, do a lower case there in, in most instances. Um, 1 Kings 3.26, then the woman whose living child uh, was spoke to the king, uh, for her heart yearned over her son, and she said, O oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and in no way kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered, Give her the living child, and definitely do not kill him. She is his mother. All Israel heard the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Now, my question is this. If they feared the king, there had to be something else there, right? Um, and why did they fear the king? Because they saw that the wisdom of God was in him. And you have to remember, these they would have heard stories of Moses. And, um, you know, you did not dare come against Moses because he had the full anointing of Ruach upon his life. And you didn't want to speak against him. And so when they saw that Solomon had the anointing of Ruach upon his life, um, they feared him because they realized that, that the wisdom of God was in him, which to me is one and the same. Yeah. As the scripture says, the fear of Yah is the beginning of wisdom. So, yeah. yeah. And then the last one here, First um, Kings 10.23 uh, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Not in his mind, but I believe he anointed him with uh, Ruach, uh, and Ruach was in his heart. Um, and I won't go to this next section here, but just to give you a little teaser, you know, you can read ahead a little bit if if you desire to, but... Um, all six attributes given to wisdom in Isaiah um, 11, 1 uh, through 3, all six of those are in Proverbs 8, and I have them numbered there. Um, and it's so crazy to me because Proverbs 8, if you guys have studied wisdom, is one of the most in-depth chapters on uh, the creation of wisdom, um, all of the different things that she does. And so to have all of those things go along with um, Isaiah 11 is just amazing to me. So, so excellent. That that was that was a great presentation, uh, Jason. And it looks like we're not quite halfway through the document yet. Uh, maybe you can verify that or not. But it was just getting really good. Like I was really. Um, caught up with this just reading along this is so we can cut it off here and uh, perhaps we can find a time to pick this up again this would be a good time if anyone has any questions or comments or observations that you've had does anybody want to jump in at this time
and great. And I just want to say again, if I haven't already, great job, Jason. I, I, I'm. Thank you. Yeah, this was just a great read through. Um, I have uh, I have a question for Jason. Yeah. Okay. First of all, it was um, a very enlightening uh, presentation. So thank you. Uh, we can definitely feel the sincerity and um, your deep uh, devotion. Um, so my question is: I'm trying to understand the the. I, I get confused because I didn't grow up Christian. So, um, so the the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. So, in the Trinity, there is sort of a family, right? Like there is a Father, there is a Son. So, what is the difference between what you are saying and and the Trinity? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Um, for one, the uh, Trinity teaches that they're all male. Um, now, it doesn't it doesn't teach that anyone created the other one. Otherwise, of course, there would be two males having a son. But um, the Trinity teaches that um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all male. They have all always existed. So um, Ruach and Yeshua were never created, um, and they are all equal. Um, so they have equal power, equal knowledge, equal authority. Um, and a lot of people had asked me, uh, especially, you know, I live in a community where um, they're just standard Protestant believers for the most part. And they're like, why would you waste so much time studying this? Like it doesn't, doesn't mean anything. And what I've started to realize and started to tell them is when we say that they are all 100% equal and they they all have the same authority, same power, same knowledge. Essentially, when Yeshua walked the earth, his whole goal was to honor his father. And he wanted to do what he saw his father do. He wanted to give his father glory. Um, and so what we are doing is we are removing the majesty of Yahweh. Um, we are taking Yahweh from just an unreachable height. And we are bringing him down to such a level um, that, in my mind, is uh, shameful. And we, we teach in 1 Timothy 3.16, uh, with the King James translation, it says, God was manifest in the flesh. And most churches in America teach that Yahweh himself walked the earth, um, which is horribly wrong. And so I it really uh, offends me that People will try to take Yahweh from uh, the unsearchable light and the unbegotten God, the, the one that we can just barely get a glimpse of, and try to pull him down um, to be equal with um, his wife and his son. And even if you read in the teachings of Yeshua, his, his goal was never to say he was equal with the Father. Um, you know, in John 14, he says, I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And in John uh, 17, 3, he says that they may know you, the only true God and Yeshua whom you have sent. And so he even calls in John 17, 3, uh, Yahweh, the only true God. Um, not meaning that Jesus isn't a, a God in a sense, but he's not the same as Yahweh. Okay, yeah. So I, I agree 
500% with everything that you said. And because, you know, I grew up on the, on the Hebrew scripture and, and their um, Messiah was never described as, uh, as Yahweh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, um, and when I, I read the New Testament for the first time and even for the 20 time, I still don't see how Yeshua claimed that he's Yahweh. So, um, so I, I totally agree with you with all of this. So, um, but, but what you are driving to is that Yeshua is, um, like, um, he, he, because there are other sons of God, right? I mean, if you look at Psalm, um, 82 and, um, you know, also Genesis 6, I mean, Bnei Elohim, so sons of God. So mm -hmm. you, are, you, are not, you are not saying that he is like one of all of those sons of God. He is like a special son of God. Right. He is uh, okay. the, uh, the first one, the unique one. And so in Colossians, when it says that he is the firstborn of all creation, um, you know, he is the, the first one, the, the special son. And the crazy thing is a lot of people get confused because it always calls Yeshua the firstborn. And, you know, in John 1, it says in the beginning was the word. And so it's giving the time frame of when he was created. Um, and we'll we'll get to it in a later section. But, um, you know, when you start reading uh, about wisdom it says she was created before time. And so she was created before time. And then the father and his wife um, had a son is the first thing in the beginning of time. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah. The only thing that doesn't make sense to me is that Yahweh has a wife. That that doesn't make sense to me and I don't see it. But when um, a, few, a couple of weeks ago... Um, Noel had a, a a presentation about Genesis, and um, I mentioned that the first um, the first verse of Genesis you have Bereshit uh, bara Elohim, and you can interpret it as Bereshit, which is the the ancient of times, basically Yahweh uh, mm -hmm. created Elohim, created uh, the the Elohim that is described uh, in in many ways in in the Bible, but but it's like a, a lower rank Elohim. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so you can definitely also say that maybe this is you know this is the creation of Yeshua that mm -hmm. uh, was very dominant in the Hebrew Scripture um, in many forms. So. Okay, thank yeah. you. I wanted to really yeah. jump in. I wanted to jump in here quickly and a little add a little bit to the Trinity. So the Trinity, the the the, the idea of you can wrap your head around this and you cannot. That's just so everyone knows you cannot wrap your head around this. Is that the the doctrine of the Trinity is not just that they're co-equal with each other. It's that we're literally looking at one Elohim, three persons. So it's it's it you can't really describe it as one person with three different masks, but there are Trinitarian gods uh, throughout history. They are in Babylon. I have 
personally been into the jungles of Cambodia and I have seen idols that were uh, ancient, that were Trinitar- uh, Trinitarian Elohim with uh, literally three different faces. And so I remember when, so within Christianity, uh, this subject is such a um, closely guarded subject yeah. uh, that you cannot, if you if you come out anti-Trinitarian, you have now stepped outside of the umbrella of the church, uh, which is mm-hmm. basically their way of saying outside of salvation. Uh, you will hear quotes to say that you can no longer be saved because you no longer are, you know. Um, so I remember when I was in in junior high, I went to a junior high Christian camp. And all through my teenage years, because I went to a lot of Christian camps, mission trips, and stuff like that, the crisis of faith was always over the Trinity. And I remember seeing teenagers crying over this because they're like, none of this makes any sense. I can't, this, yeah. I, I don't get it. And they would have to have counselors come in and try to um, tell these people that you're not supposed to get it. So to give an example, when what my, uh, my wife's, uh, best friend found out that we were not Trinitarians. We haven't been in quite a few years, but she started freaking out and she started feeling like she needed to intercede in our, our spiritual walk to bring us back to the Trinity to believe that, uh, that the father is the son is the, the Holy spirit, uh, you know, and you know, it's just taking on different roles within the, persons and blah 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 and she sent this book and i i had talked to my group about this and 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 my wife sarah's like she agreed to okay i'll read the book you know and the the whole book was basically like we're too stupid to get it don't try it just proves <laughs> that the trinity it proves that the trinity is legitimate because um he's so brilliant that he you know we can't expect to get it and that's basically the whole thing like if you if you if you get it, then you don't get it. And if you don't get it, you're in a good spot and you just have to have faith and believe that's the whole book. So, um, anyways, something to that, Noel, um, the other thing, and I'm sure you've heard this as well. Whenever you get into discussion with a a pastor or, you know, a theologian about the Trinity and you get too deep into it, their end answer is always God's mind is bigger than our mind. Therefore we cannot understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And I say to them, you can't just add that on to any phrase and make me believe it. You know, could I tell you a, a, a lie? And then because I gave that statement at the end, uh, it would make it true. Exactly. It's a de- default statement to, to mm-hmm. uh, explain really anything that they want. Yeah. Yeah. So when I, yeah, so when I think of the word in Hebrew is ikad. And Rob, Michael, and I were going through this in the Hebrew Gospel of John. And it, it, for me, this this completely, this shows where all the confusion is with the Trinity. And I think it was, I don't know, what, what chapter was it, Rob, in like chapter 16 or something like that of John? And he's praying, uh, maybe it's chapter 17, 18, right in there, where Yahusha is praying it, the popular prayer that, you know, that his followers would be one just as he is one. And he's actually using the word ikad. He's saying that just as you and I, Father, are ikad, you know, I pray that they would be ikad. And and so right there, that's a huge problem for this this trinity, um, this argument, mm-hmm. because now we're all being included in this so-called trinity of this 
you know, perfect uh, unity. So, yeah, and the end result is it's completely stolen the family of God away from us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know if you go into this later, and 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 we're gonna have to, you know, already there's people voting to bring you back. They want to, you know, bring you back to finish this. It makes me wonder because you know we talk about we we get into the the blasphemy of the the spirit the uh, the rule of Hakadosh the this you know yeah. this unforgivable uh, this unforgiven sin and it, it just and Rob has talked about this this was one of the things that really struck me early on this idea of being in contempt of court and mm-hmm. and th- that could be this whole masquerade for the trinity is actually to bring people in contempt to destroy this holy family and you know just you know three dudes and you can completely you know cover up mask it up with the idea of of a, a three persons one god approach so it could, it could, you know, it, it's not going to make it or break it for, you know, salvation in, in, in not being able to understand the nature of Elohim, but you can totally see where it, it can put some people on some dangerous footing. Yeah. And I know you guys have talked about it before, um, but, you know, definitely with the unpardonable sin, it says that, you know, you can sin against the sun. But if you sin against Ruach HaKodesh, that it will not be forgiven in this life or the next. And when you start to realize um, that Ruach is feminine and she's the wife of Yahweh, um, you know, people have actually, I'm not going to name them off here, but people have made cuss words to come against mothers, you know, because if you want to anger someone on this earth, you start talking bad about a man's wife or you start talking bad about uh, someone's mother. And so they've made whole swear words, uh, you know, for this thing to really get under people's skin. And furthermore, um, you know, the feminine nature um, is more sensitive. And so if someone really comes against them harshly, it can wound their spirits. And I believe the father is very protective over Ruach, uh, Yeshua as well. And if someone uh, wounds Ruach, that offends him in a, in a way that nothing else can. And it's just one of those things that you don't, you don't want to do. Yeah, and we see this in scriptures uh, played out uh, in the roles of a father, of a husband, uh, being a covering, being the protector, being, you know, uh, y- you mess with the guy's wife or, or the guy's mother, etc. There, there is that dynamic that is in play in, in our earthly realm. And we can see that here, uh, if you will, if you translate it that way, or you just don't blaspheme the, the Ruach HaKodesh. Yeah. Yeah, and if you look in the New Testament, uh, Ruach is called the helper, right? Yep. And, you know, what is what is Eve called in, you know, in Genesis? Um, you know, that Adam needs a helper, you know. And so, um, you know, I don't want to get too far into it because it's, it's in some of the next section that I'm going to get into. But um, you can kind of piece that all together that, um, 
you know, the, the wife is the, the helper of the husband, that they're perfectly meshed together. Anybody else have? Yeah, I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say. Anybody else have any thoughts? Anything right. to add? Hey, does anybody have a question they want to bring forth to Jason before he closes up? And when we are done, if I could close in prayer too, that would be awesome. Well, maybe this is a good time to go ahead and officially close. Jason, why don't you close in prayer and then um, we can end the session and then we'd like to, you know, stay on afterwards and just chat as a group. But uh, this would be a good time. Yeah. Okay. Lord, we just, uh, I just pray over anyone um, who heard this message today or, or will hear it in the future. Um, I ask that you would uh, stir a hunger in their hearts to discover uh, who Ruach HaKodesh is. Um, and I pray that if, if I've spoke, spoken anything incorrectly or out of turn, that that would be highlighted to them, that they would know the difference between uh, a truth and a lie. And I also pray that if I've spoken things that are truth, that you would stir something in them, that even if they don't uh, catch the revelation today, that that you chase after them and that they would have uh, dreams and visions and just a stirring in their gut that they would want to, to search deeper, that they would want to find out more information on who Rock is. And we just ask for your, uh, your presence to be upon us. We ask just so you release uh, your anointing over us. And we just thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Jason, for that wonderful presentation. And shalom, everybody. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, you're very welcome. Well, I'd like to say that I can't wait for part two, and I want to know when that's going to be, and I hope it's really soon. Um, I have always been confused by the Trinity. I never understood it. I could never wrap my mind around it. And I know why now, because it's not true. Um, and the explanation of the feminine rock HaKodesh, uh, you know, even when we went into it before, that made, it, it just it just seemed right to me. And all of this just, <clears throat> it, it's really amazing that, you know, I, I want to know a lot more about the whole Council of Nicaea, because I think that they changed a lot of things. I, I think they basically kind of, invented christianity at that council by changing scripture by changing the name of yahusha um a lot of different things and and the fact that i found that just a couple days ago uh, because i was searching i wanted to know the origins of where these things came from and then for you to come along and do this presentation it's it just you know i feel like the spirit is actually moving among us right now and then there's also, I feel like there's a spirit moving, trying to disrupt all of this, you know, with little things going on. Um, I, I, I just, you know, I, I really, really want to say how much I appreciate these meetings and uh, all the work that everybody puts into it. And, and I can't wait to hear part two. Yeah, Rebecca, um, that's it's really cool because the... Uh, 
the Council of Nicaea literally changed uh, the face of Christianity, um, along with uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381 um, was another big one. Yet the Council of Nicaea in 325, they basically made a decision that um, Yahweh and Yeshua were uh, the same essence in the in equal and everything. The Holy Spirit, however, was not discussed in that council. Now, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, that's when they brought all three together and said that they are, it, it's a trio now, and they're all equal. Now, just in fairness, when they did the council in 381, they changed the Nicene Creed at that time to include uh, Ruach. But originally, the entire discussion of Nicaea was only about um, Yahweh and Yeshua. Um, and some of the book, you would probably enjoy it a lot. Some of the book is going to be, would be boring to some people. But at the top of the thing where I have uh, the mystery of the Son of God and the men that tried to destroy it, um, a court case against history, part one, essentially that is um, all of the proof that I've found that they on purpose changed um, tons of things to conceal Yeshua being the literal son of Yahweh. Um, and there's a huge section in there on a bunch of the church councils. And I actually have quotes of what uh, what men said what at the different church councils. And you'll actually be surprised at what the arguments were about because the doctrine of the Trinity took so many years to develop that their arguments were not what you think they were. You know, I will say this on origin that this this shows where I've come from in, in having to fight against the indoctrination, you know, just swim upstream on this, is that several years ago, I remember starting to read, I started taking a, an interest in the um, apostolic fathers and so on and so forth. I started reading Origin and just started like tripping out on this guy. And, and I was like, you know, like, thank God the church, you know, course corrected where we were going with Origin. Um, and so, because, you know, I would read what he was writing and some of these other guys, and it was so foreign and alien to everything that, you know, we, we believe that the church now believes. And um, it's a, it's a very, un, it's a very unjarring experience. The first time you start going through some of these guys and going like, man, like, like it, <laughs> it, it took like the whole church took like a, you know, like a wrong turn or something like that. on A lot of this stuff. So um, but anyways, yeah, it just kind of shows where, and this is hard because it, it, it's hard for people to have their paradigm, ch you know, changed and, you know, feel people feel comfortable where they're at and that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and at the council of Nicaea, um, you know, your main, uh, opponents were, uh, Alexander was the main one arguing for, um, what we now know as the doctrine of the Trinity. And Arius was the one arguing, saying that um, Yahweh created Yeshua. Now, the only way we know Arius anymore in history is all of the theologians say that he was a heretic. And, and they actually have a label on it that if you don't believe in the Trinity, uh, you'll hear people call you uh, a part of the Arian heresy because of Arius. Um, and really, his only crime was saying that the father... Um, created the sun and it was greater than the sun. Um, and there's a couple other levels to some of the discussions, but now here's the crazy thing. 
Constantine ordered Arius's works to be burned upon the penalty of death. And I actually have uh, Constantine's quote in one of my books where he actually gave out an edict or an order. And upon the penalty of death, you had to destroy Arius's writings. And to my knowledge, there are no writings of Arius, even fragments, left today. Except for quotes from other writers. Hey, Jason, I have a quick question for you, if you don't mind. Oh, I'm, I'm back again. I just turned off. Who said something? Yeah, I was going to ask you a quick question about the uh, different Bible versions. And I heard you mention the uh, Septuagint um, as being, you know, a little bit favored. Mm -hmm. And I was curious your thoughts on Genesis. Uh, I think it's 4627, where the Septuagint has 75 souls um, from Egypt. And the other ones, they just say 70. And I was curious on your thoughts as far as, um, you know, the veracity of Septuagint. That does it seem to you like that specific change was an attempt to match Acts 7, I believe it's verse 14, um, you know, after the fact, kind of like the Septuagint might have been written after the New Testament? Or do you see it as being another reason why the difference there? Um, I haven't studied that passage specifically. Most of the things I've studied um, are the verses changed for the Trinity. Um, I will say this, though, and I might have said it earlier. Um, Jerome, you know, of course, uh, translated the Bible into Latin. Now, he did this um, for the Old Testament from the Hebrew text. And so what Jerome says is that the Hebrew text is different from the Septuagint. Um, that it was changed in some places. So I I don't want to say that the Septuagint is a perfect text, if that makes sense. But then when you when you go to the third text, because we don't have uh, these ancient Hebrew texts anymore, unfortunately. When you go to the Hebrew text we have today, which is from 1008, um, it's been sort of highly modified, at least in areas regarding uh, the Trinity and some regarding Ruach. Um, and so when you read Origen, even though he was reading off of a Hebrew text most of the time, it's much closer usually to the Septuagint because the 1008 Hebrew text um, has been modified, sort of like a game of telephone, if you will. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I get the concept. Um, I think the thing that was leaning me towards, because I've been looking at this um, idea of whether or not Septuagint is more reliable than the Hebrew text. And someone brought this up to me and they were like, well, if that 75 count, which seems to be trying to match the Acts um, 7 account, which is actually talking about a different number, it's the house of Jacob versus his kindred, which could include wives. Um, but that that 75 number in the Septuagint, it includes the sons of the sons of Joseph. So um, Manasseh and Ephraim's sons. But the okay. problem is that they would be eight years old when that happened, and there's no way they could be fathers. Mm -hmm. So that was like one of the things that was kind of, you know, I, I was sold on Septuagint at first, and then I heard that, and I was like, man, I need to think about that. So I've just been asking around for anybody who's looked into the different versions and 
you know, looked into this concept of is the step 200 more reliable if they would have any insight. Yeah. Well, and honestly, the saddest thing to me um, is I've spent quite a few years researching the, the manuscripts and trying to find the most accurate text possible. Um, but I'm sad to say this, but no text I found is perfect. They, you, can, you can find a flaw in all of them. And so, unfortunately, what I have been looking for is the most accurate text, but not the perfect text. Um, I wish the perfect text was out there. I really, really do. But I don't think it is anymore. I think that they, um, they've been destroyed. Yeah, I was reading this introduction to the New Testament book, and it blew me away when he made the claim that there's no two manuscripts that are identical. <laughs> I was like, yeah. really? <laughs> well, and the other thing, um, sometimes people repeat uh, things so many times that we start to believe them, if you know what I mean. Um, now you have the verse where um, it says, all scripture is God-breathed. Are you familiar with that one, I'm sure, right? Yeah, of course. Um, now, for one, uh, Paul is saying this to Timothy, and the New Testament uh, wasn't written at the time. Um, and the other thing is, if you look at the Strong's, um, most other translations say all Scripture is inspired by God. Um, God breathed is a very inaccurate translation. Um, and so I feel like sometimes we don't allow um, Paul or anyone else to make any possible um, any possible error. But also, if something has been rewritten, um, you know, 500 times, it's going to be hard not to have any letters wrong. Now, whenever I discuss things like these, I, I try to be careful because I never want to harm anyone's faith. And the Bible is very, very accurate. Um, none of these things are going to change um, someone's salvation. Um, so I, I don't like to talk about it with someone who's a new believer, but for someone that wants to go, um, deeper, there are times where the Bible doesn't always, um, agree with itself. You know, like I could show you some verses, um, out of, uh, Kings and Chronicles, um, in the Masoretic, um, or the Septuagint that, um, you can't quite reconcile. Yeah, I've had a couple of Muslims that those are actually the verses they bring up. Yeah, and and so I don't I try to be as honest as I can with everyone. Like I I don't want to, you know, if I know some of those things, I can't look someone in the eye and lie to them. But but I can say that if you look at all the different manuscripts, all the different translations Greek, Hebrew, Latin, you know, they agree with each other, let's just say 99% of the, of the time. And even though there's little word differences and everything that um, they still mean essentially the same thing. And so we do have um, the real gospel and, you know, the real Torah in our hands. Um, but it might not be perfect. You know, if, it, if they were written so many years ago, 
we, we can't expect um, every single thing to be perfect. And through reading history, you can start to uncover how these writers quoted it back in the 200s and the 100s, and you can try to get closer to the closer to the truth.